episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Okay, wonderful. Uh, welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show. Uh, uh, I'm going to start off today with some uh, very interesting uh, figures uh, to lay the, the groundwork for our discussion. So, Around the world, there are an estimated 1,500 potentially active volcanoes, uh, aside from the ones that are uh, beneath the ocean floor. And it is estimated about 500 of those 1,500 have erupted within historical time. Um, the last supervolcano, of which there are still 20 on the planet, uh, erupted around 26,000 years ago in New Zealand. And the estimated force to achieve that eruption was estimated to be around the equivalent of 100,000 Hiroshima nuclear bombs. So quite a bit of energy generated. Um, we're honored today to be joined by Dr. Graham Ryan, who is director at the Montserrat Volcano Observatory in Montserrat uh, in the West Indies. Uh, Dr. Ryan has 17 years of experience in volcanology and geothermal geophysics, uh, and he uses his skills to better understand the nature and behavior of magmatic systems and fluid flow through geothermal systems. Uh, his current research interests include uh, ground deformation associated with volcanic systems of Eastern Caribbean and also joint interpretation and inversion to determine the architecture of geothermal and magnetic systems within the region. Uh, Dr. Ryan has a master's in physics from the University of Manchester, a PhD in volcanology from Lancaster University, uh, and he's published over 20 articles and book chapters in a variety of peer-reviewed uh, international publications. Uh, in addition to his work at the Montserrat Volcano Observatory, he also spent six years at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, uh, studying a wide range of, uh, of topics, including the, the fluid flow pathways in geothermal systems and with a particular eye to targeting geothermal wells for energy production. And while he was based in New Zealand, he traveled uh, around the world in a variety of countries uh, studying uh, volcan volcanoes, including Montserrat, but also uh, Rwanda, Chile, the United States. Uh, and he's also developed expertise in electromagnetic induction, particularly magnetometallurgic techniques useful for te uh, imaging systems deep within the Earth's crust. So a lot of very exciting topics to talk about today. Dr. Ryan, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Ira. Thanks for the introduction. I've also learned lots of things about volcanoes just now. Um, <laughs> how many there are and all of this. I tend to be quite myopic and like just focus on, on the one that I'm on. <laughs> That's okay. I figured I, I, I try to get up to speed a little bit. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Ryan, typically we, we start the show off by, uh, by handing our guests the floor for a little bit just to uh, talk about themselves. If you could just take a little time to introduce yourself, uh, you know, talk about sort of you know, where you grew up, uh, how you developed your interest in science, in, in physics and geophysics and obviously volcanology uh, and a little bit of your path to date. Uh, I think that'd be a great way to sort of uh, mm -hmm. lay the groundwork for everything we're going to be discussing. Yeah, well, I've kind of led an itinerant um, life, really. I was, I was born in the United Kingdom, um, but I came to Montserrat when I was about seven years old. Uh, yeah, so, um, in terms of interest in science, I think since, in, um, since I was a pretty small kid, I've, I've just been, been interested in science. I think maybe from television, um, you know, like the characters like Spock and 
the professor on Gilligan's Island and all these kinds of people um, who had this kind of esoteric knowledge and were able to figure things out and make things. I thought that was really exciting. You know, I kind of wanted to be able to do that. It seemed like the kind of closest thing to real magic. So that's, I think, yeah. Ever since I was a little kid, I was just kind of interested in, in kind of trying to gain that kind of knowledge. And uh, so, yeah, so I moved to Montserrat and when I was seven. And then when I was 16, I went back to the UK and did my A-level um, exams, um, like maths, physics, chemistry. And then went to the University of Manchester where I did a degree in physics. Uh, it was actually physics with technological physics. It was like physics and electronics and computer programming. And so that, that was my kind of first idea. And I thought it was kind of... I didn't, I didn't really have a full plan of what I was going to do. I really was just following my interests. I was really interested in, in physics. And so I was do that and figure out the rest later on. Um, but when I was midway through my degree, um, so I started my degree in 1993. And in 1995, the uh, Sufri Hills volcano in Montserrat started erupting. So... I then, I came home in the summer of 96 to Montserrat and it just seemed, you know, it seemed there was a lot of interesting stuff going on at the Volcano Observatory. So I mean, obviously, you know, I was midway through physics and, and uh, they were, you know, using lots of interesting um, instruments and stuff. So I went to the Volcano Observatory and, you know, volunteered to, to kind of work there. And so I did that during the summer in 96. And that's kind of where, you know, I got interested in volcanology. So it was a really exciting time. The moment was the beginning of the eruption. And well, there wasn't, it was still kind of establishing the Volcano Observatory and establishing the monitoring. And it, there wasn't, there wasn't a fixed complement of staff as, as you know, like we have now. There would be um, like volcanology professors would come in for like a, a month or two and they'd bring their PhD students and kind of work with um, local staff to, to do the monitoring. So it was always just an influx of new people and new students. So it was really kind of an exciting time to do lots of Kind of young PhD students as a volcano erupting, and you're doing lots of interesting stuff. Um, so I think that's kind of where I got bitten with, bitten by the bug then, and decided that I wanted to you know, do a PhD in volcanology. Kind of after that, so I came back. In, so the next year, '97, I came back and did the same thing again, and then. Uh, I graduated in 97 and I started a PhD in 1998 at Lancaster University. So there I kind of switched 
years a bit because I've been obviously I've been involved in kind of active monitoring well kind of adjacent and kind of helping out with that and this and then when at Lancaster the project I was doing was um, more experimental so we kind of built a kind of a volcano in the lab and the original idea was to look at fragmentation which is you know what happens when a volcano erupts the magma is coming up it um, the bubbles start coming out of the magma and it eventually kind of rips itself apart and you get you get these eruptions that produce pumice which is um, volcanic rocks that are full of bubbles and so the initial plan was to look at that fragmentation process using something called uh, gum rosin which is what they, I think they use that for violin bows and they kind of rub that in violin bows for some reason uh, so we'd kind of uh, <clears throat> make a fluid mixture with the gum rosin and diethyl ether and then rapidly decompress that and then that would create this bubbly flow that would then fragment and you know, put pressure transducers and so forth to, to kind of study that process. But during experiments, I became more interested in what was happening after the fragmentation. So initially, like the experiment was over after like three seconds. Mm -hmm. And kind of, I just left the stuff running in the lab kind of overnight for, I don't know, whatever reason. And I came back the next day and there was these really interesting signals in the pressure transducers that uh, I wasn't expecting. It was kind of like a sawtooth signal. So the pressure would rise and then drop and rise and then drop. And it just kept kind of going on and on. I was like, that's um, really interesting. And it was something that I'd seen in Montserrat mm. where there was you know, these things called tilt tilt cycles. So a tilt meter just measures um, kind of the how the inclination is, is changing. So as, a, as magma comes into a system, it causes the ground to, to, to kind of swell up. So the various ground deformation techniques that you look at to see how, how the ground is, is, is responding to influx of magma. And one of those is a tilt meter. So it's very, you know, you're looking at micro, micro degrees of, of, of change. So early in the eruption, there's this tilt meter that was quite close into the volcano and it was producing these tilt cycles. Every few hours, it would kind of go up and come down. And then at one point, it turned out these tilt cycles were coincident with ex explosions. There was a period of time when we were getting explosions every every few hours and it would it would coincide with these tilt cycles. The tilt would increase and then boom, it would explode and then drop. So, was, so that was why I became very interested in these tilt cycles. Well, was this related to what I'd seen then? So, so kind of my research kind of went down that path of looking at these tilt cycles and what was causing them and you know how they might be related to explosive activity. So we did that. And so yeah, I did my PhD and then I actually still wasn't, I, I 
still didn't really have a plan. I was still just following, you know, what's the next interesting thing to do. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, so I mean, I, just, I did the PhDs, oh, this is, you know, this is really interesting, this is cool, I'll just do that. Uh, I, I hadn't really said, oh, I'll go and work at, you know, the Volcano Observatory afterwards. So I, was like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I came back to Montserrat and um, the director at the time, then um, Jill Jolly, she offered me a, a, a job. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So I worked here at the Volcano Observatory. Um, that, so that was, when did I start that? It was 2003, I started at the Volcano Observatory here. I did a variety of, of different, different jobs. We had kind of smaller staff. So I did the ground deformation monitoring. So we have a series, the backbone of that is a series of um, very sensitive, continuous GPS um, stations that we have around the volcano, various places. And so, you know, kind of normal GPS in your car, you know, gets you to within a few meters, sure. you know, of where you actually are. But these GPS will get you to, you know, a centimeter or less. So you can like, see what is um, how this deformation is is um, evolving, and so the monster is a very interesting deformation signal. Um, with, um, so the eruption here is episodic, and so we have started in '95 and technically still ongoing in 2020. And in that period, there have been five phases of eruptive activity. And so you'd have, you know, an eruption with, with magma coming out and explosions and pyroclastic flows, which are avalanches of hot rock and ash um, and, and things like that. And that would go on for a couple of years and then it would stop for like a year or two and there'd be no no magma coming out and then it would start again and you have a few years of activity and it stops and so on. So of these stops and starts, when you look at the ground deformation during the times when there's no um, magma coming out, the ground kind of swells up and swells up and swells up. And then when it starts erupting, it it subsides like that. Mm. And so the idea kind of a standard model is that magma is magma's coming in into the magma chamber that's feeding the eruption and causing the ground to kind of swell out as it has to accommodate this bigger and bigger magma chamber. And then when it erupts, the magma is coming out and that balloon underneath, think about it, it's, it's kind of emptying out and, and the, the balloon is collapsing and comes down. So, so I was doing that. Another thing that we look at is gas, gas fluxes, um, the major flux that we measure is sulfur dioxide, so that's one of the major volcanic gases. I mean, actually the biggest one is water vapor, but that's kind of harder to measure because there's water vapor in the atmosphere already. So we look at sulfur dioxide coming out and 
So it was an interesting time. So they were just pioneering these scanning UV spectrometers. So they scanned through the plume, um, so over about six minutes or so, they'll scan through, and you can then um, reconstruct how much sulfur dioxide is coming out of the, of the whole volcano by kind of scanning through it every six minutes. And so you can get um, continuous um, sulfur dioxide fluxes as they come out. And also, also, obviously one of the things that you need to keep track of is how much magma is coming out. Um, so we had a, we need to measure the volume of the, of the dome. You know, so when it's, when it's uh, extruding, obviously the dome is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you, we want to see what that rate is because you know if it's if it's coming out more quickly, that might mean that you might be more prone to explosive activity and so on. Mm. So we do that. So actually developed like a kind of in-house photogrammetry method, kind of well, kind of a hodgepodge. It's not really true photogrammetry. This is because this is back in the like kind of mid 2000s. Now we have like really lots of awesome software and you know, uh, things like Agisoft. And you can take pictures of things and create nice DEMs, but I didn't have that back in the day. So I'd kind of make my own kind of thing. So I would go, I'd get as close to the volcano as I could, take a picture at one spot and then go somewhere else, take another picture at another spot and then kind of, I would buy eyes. So, okay, that boulder is in this picture, that boulder is in that picture, and kind of reconstruct points on the dome and then kind of model model the, the volcano and then calculate the volumes and stuff like that. So that was that was one of the other things I was doing. So that it was pretty interesting and there was a lot of activity in that time. It was mm -hmm. uh, yeah it was Quite an interesting time. And then in 2008, I guess I was kind of getting itchy feet. And we had a big project that we were part of called Sea Calypso, which was um, a P wave tomography survey for the whole island. So that in that you we went around in a ship for several days towing what's called an air gun, which uh, produces blasts every minute or so as you go around the island. And then we had maybe like a couple of hundred seismometers on the island, which are recording these blasts. And so the idea is that the seismic waves go down under the, under the earth and then back up to the up to the seismometers on the island, and by looking at the travel times, how long the seismic waves take to go from the air gun to the seismometer on the island, you can calculate what the P wave velocity must be mm -hmm. underneath mm -hmm. the island. Okay. And so you're looking at seismic velocities, like, you know, Average might be something like six kilometers a second, seven kilometers a second, and in some parts it might be six, 
some parts it might be eight. And so you're looking at these variations in, in the P wave velocity under the island. The idea was we'll be able to find the magma chamber using this and, and, and make a picture of it because the P wave velocity should be different in the magma. Uh, could be s slower. If it's, if it's very bubbly, that might um, cause it to be quite slow. If, it's, if it were quite dense, it might even be faster than kind of a fractured rock around it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of fine that. But it turned out that that didn't quite work as neatly as possible as 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 uh, was hoped, because the waves were actually kind of bending back up. So it's it's uh, it uh, like the seismic waves, you know, leave the air gun and then they go down and then go to the subsurface and then they kind of bend back up because of the change in velocity causes this kind of bending, um, kind of refraction of the seismic waves. And what was happening was they, they were kind of bending back up before they got deep enough to, to see the magma chamber. Mm -hmm. And so quite work as neatly as possible. We're still able to make some inferences using like reflected waves and stuff like that. So, but, um, but it's still got a really, some really nice data down yeah. to, you know, four or five kilometers. But we think the magma chamber is like, you know, belief below about six kilometers. And, but during that project, there, there was a, there were a lot, number of different universities involved in that. And um, one was Duke University. Sure. And it was a professor, um, Peter Mallon, he was just about to move to New Zealand to start a new research institute there. And so he, while he was there in Montserrat, he offered me a job in New Zealand. So, you know, I thought, oh, that sounds you know, exciting and go and do something else. And so I went to New Zealand in 2008 and got into, so, so there, the, they were mainly interested in, in geothermal systems mm -hmm. and uh, kind of mapping geothermal systems and looking at that. So, so that's what I did for the next um, few years. I was there between 2008, 2014. And as you said, we, I was mainly using magnetotellurics, okay. um, which is a, a method for measuring or and modeling subsurface resistivity. So resistivity is how easily um, an electric current can flow through things. So it's like, you know, it's, uh, it's related to resistance. So you don't kind of have high, high resistance materials like plastics that don't conduct electricity very easily and obviously things like metals are very high conductivity or low resistivity and they conduct very well. So what you're doing is you're kind of measuring the resistivity in the subsurface to try and infer something about what's going on. And so for geothermal systems, what happens is where you have high temperatures, um, 
and over 70, 70 to 90 degrees Celsius in the subsurface mm. with, with fluid, it basically um, kind of rots the rock and turns it into clay. So like a clay, the, the rock turns into these clays and the clays are very conductive, whereas pristine rock is not conductive at all. It's very um, low resistivity. So what you see when you have a geothermal system, you'll have this very low resistivity cap, which is called a clay cap. And it shows up very clearly and can tell you, you know, okay, how, you know, that you have a geothermal system there, how deep it is and what the extent of it is. So, so I spent a lot of time doing, doing that, that kind of work in, in different places. I said, we did quite a lot in New Zealand. Uh, I did some in the uh, Western US in Nevada. We, we did a, quite a big survey in Rwanda. Uh, mm. They were yeah, trying to see if they had a geothermal resource there. Um, and, and actually, <laughs> Almost coincidentally, the, in Montserrat, they started to, at the time that I left, they got interested in geothermal energy. <laughs> and so it just turned out that we kind of won the contract to do the geophysical um, exploration in Montserrat. So I ended up coming from New Zealand back to Montserrat to do mm. the magnetotelluric survey there. So I did that and that was 2009. So I left 2008 back in 2009. And I ended up almost every year I was in New Zealand, I'd come back to Montserrat to do various work for the, for the, for the geothermal stuff. So it was kind of that kind of link that just kind of kept kind of pulling me, pulling me back. But, you know, just without, it wasn't any real plan there. Just, that's just how it, how it played out. And, so yeah, so I did that and then 2014, the, uh, so I was at the University of Auckland and it, it was a research institute, but it was uh, kind of a kind of novel structure where we, we were doing some commercial work as well as research and the kind of idea was to, to try and make the commercial stuff fund the research and then like in 2014, the Institute got spun out into, into a kind of more purely commercial operation. And so I was like, well, you know, I, I think I really like the research side of things more mm -hmm. than the commercial side of things. So I decided to, you know, look for a new, a new job at that point. And at that point, the University of the West Indies um, which is three major campuses. We have one in Jamaica, Mona, one in Barbados at Cave Hill, and one in Trinidad, St. Augustine. And so the Seismic Research Center was advertising for a um, geophysicist, who actually was actually a geochemist, actually, <laughs> they were advertising for. But I put in an application. I was successful, so I went um, to Trinidad. So I was, you know, kind of back in the region mm -hmm. again. So yeah, Trinidad is quite 
just adjacent to, to Venezuela, it's about seven kilometers from, from Venezuela. Um, whereas Montserrat is, is, is uh, a bit more northerly. But the Seismic Research Center has um, responsibility for monitoring earthquakes, volcanoes and tsunamis in the English-speaking Caribbean. Okay. And it also had the contract to manage the Montserrat Volcano Observatory. Um, so when I came back, I was again, I was in charge of looking at ground deformation across the region, mm -hmm. but because we also worked with, you know, we, were, we had the, we were in charge of managing the Montserrat Volcano Observatory. Uh, when a member of staff would go on holiday, uh, or something that needed cover, then you know I would go and and kind of fill in. So kind of came back to Montserrat again <laughs> in that kind of way. Um, so that that was um, it was good. So it was, you know involved in, in various various things. I'd come back to Montserrat and do do some things from time to time and. Uh, kind of stay involved with the geothermal project, mm -hmm. um, and then in when was it? Twenty nineteen, the post for director became vacant, and so I applied and was successful with that. So now I'm back in Montserrat as the director of the volcano observatory here. So I think that kind of brings us up to the present day. <laughs> Absolutely. A, a wonderful journey. And yeah. Back to Montserrat, but hey, there's something, you know, there's something behind it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating journey. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned uh, is, the, you know, this topic of a magnetic solurex, which you've been very actively involved in, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, of looking at these uh, geomagnetic and geoelectric fields and so forth. Um, what, if, if, you know, looking at um, other technologies that, uh, you know, from your perspective as a volcanologist and, 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 and once again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking, <laughs> I, I shouldn't mm -hmm. be talking out of, out of purpose here just because I have no experience in this area. But, you know, we, we talk about uh, technologies like artificial intelligence and machine mm -hmm. learning and, and other things, obviously, for predicting uh, in yeah. the future. We talked a little bit about this with hurricanes. I'm up here on the East Coast of the United States, and I, I see more hurricanes <laughs> than anything, earthquakes yeah. or volcanoes, of course. Um, any interesting tools uh, along these lines or other things that you're developing, obviously not confidential, yeah. that yeah. Um, are going to be useful for, you know, shortening that uh, or expanding the amount of time when something dangerous is going to happen uh, yeah. in one of these locations. It's interesting. I mean, obviously, I mean, lots of people are doing research in various areas, um, including AI. I'm not too au fait with exactly what's going on in an area, but there's no kind of killer kind of application that's come out of that yet. And like one of the problems, you could be, you know, you just, you know, I think to, for things like AI, you need, you need to have a lot of training data. Sure. And, and in volcanology, 
um, I think getting getting that that amount of, of data can be quite difficult and each volcano is kind of different so it's it's kind of probably a, a hard a harder problem mm-hmm. um, than in some other domains where where the problem is, is kind of more constrained and okay. you, you can you know really have a, a ton of very kind of well-behaved data that you can kind of, kind of attack so I think that's probably why it hasn't born fruit yet, not to say that it won't. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of machine learning, I mean, obviously machine learning is a very broad, broad um, kind sure. of area. And so actually um, my PhD student has just uh, had like a, a manuscript accepted where we're kind of using machine learning for the uh, Montserrat Geothermal system. So I said it started in 2009, and I'm just kind of been noodling away, uh, trying to to kind of get a better understanding of the system here. And so one of the things that Racine has been looking at is using fuzzy clustering to mm-hmm. to create a subsurface model of the geothermal system. So it's, so we talked briefly, and so it's, you know it's a, a clay cap. And so, so for Montserrat, Montserrat's really great because it's the focus of a lot of research. And so there, is, there are a lot of different data sets that you have access to that you, in different places you might not. Mm-hmm. And so, so like here we have the sea calypsos, we have this P wave tomography, which although it was, didn't quite work as it's, as hoped finding the magma chamber, the depth range is perfect for the looking at the geothermal system. So you know the geothermal system, so here we've drilled three wells and to depths of up to 2.8 kilometers. And okay. the model is pretty good down to three, four kilometers. For the P wave, so we have really nice information from that. We have nice information from the magnetotelluric study that I did, which also gives us some stuff. And we had um, Stephanie Holtman did did some um, gravity surveys on the island. Um, so you're looking at kind of microgravity and like looking at minute differences in gravity from place to place, which tell you something about the structure of the subsurface and like, you know, how the density is varying. So we have these three very nice three-dimensional models, one of how density is varying in the subsurface, one of how resistivity is varying in the subsurface, and one of how P-wave velocity is varying in the subsurface. So in theory, for each point in the subsurface, we have those three different values. And so using the clustering, you can pick out, okay, oh, this, this area, you can pick out different clusters of, of, of uh, properties that go together and, and then we can interpret them. So we've interpreted, okay, this is where the clay cap is. It's got a very low resistivity. It's got a low P wave velocity. 
and kind of lowish density. And, you know, this is the kind of unaltered rock. It's got uh, kind of a, a low P wave velocity, but very high resistivity and like a medium kind of density. So, so using that kind of idea, we can like create, we can take the data and, and then turn it into an interpretation. This is the clay cat. This is where the geothermal reservoir is. Mm -hmm. This is where you have unaltered rock sitting on top of it. This is where you kind of have the um, dense basement below the, below the reservoir. And so we've been using clustering to, 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 to kind of squeeze uh, more interpretation out of the, out of the data. So, so that's one kind of simple, simple application uh, kind of utilize. Mm -hmm. When it comes to um, the region uh, in, 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 in CARICOM, um, I think you have, the, you have a volcano, I think, Dominica, St. Vincent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, once again, amateurish question here, but because, um, <laughs> you know, I only see hurricanes. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, you're not an expert, it's fine. <laughs> but um, what is the, uh, the volcanology community like in the sense that do you, do you plan things sort of as a group and then sort of um, are there things that you study in terms of volcano clusters, let's say, in, in a specific area, or is it solely, you know, we're only going to focus on, I'm just trying to think of it, because, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, when you think about hurricanes, right, you know, in, in, in the Atlantic, they start, you know, off the coast of Africa, and they swing through the South Atlantic, mm -hmm. and yeah. are volcanoes connected uh, intricately in mm -hmm. similar context and could you learn something from what's happening in Montserrat yeah. with what's going to happen in St. Vincent yeah. and, and so forth? Yeah, so I mean, each volcano is, is different, mm -hmm. but um, so yeah, there are, there are going to be differences, um, but in, you, you can learn lessons from one volcano and kind of see them in others. And there are different kinds of volcanoes. Okay. So, and and they, they occur in different settings. So here, all of the all of the volcanoes in the Lesser Antilles uh, are there because of subduction subduction zone volcanism. Okay. So you have the Atlantic plate. This is the Caribbean plate, and the Atlantic plate here, and this um, Atlantic plate is subducting. As it, as, you know, plate tectonics and it kind of keeps moving and it goes down, down, down. And so as that plate goes down, broadly the water gets kind of squeezed out of this plate because it's been sitting under the ocean for millions of years. And there's lots of water rich sediments in it and it goes down and this water comes out and, and kind of trickles up into the mantle and that water lowers the melting temperature of the mantle and essentially melts the mantle. And then this magma then kind of starts to buoyantly ascend and kind of where it makes its way to the surface, you have a volcano. And that's the, this, the process that is responsible for all of the volcanoes 
in the Lesser Antilles. Okay. So that's, that's, you know, and they have a particular kind of chemistry. So broadly, so like Hawaiian volcanoes are completely different. Okay. Well, in, I mean, they're still volcanoes. But so, the, so I mean, I won't go to too much detail, but those are hot spot volcanoes. So, there you have a, a plume that's coming directly from the mantle, um, like a convection, a convection plume that's coming straight up in Hawaii and, and coming straight up and then kind of like punching a hole through the crust. And as the, as the plate moves along, kind of punches up in a new place and punches up in a new place. And that's where you have a chain of Hawaiian islands. That's the plate moving along and this hot plume is coming through. And so this, that kind of magma is very um, relatively low in silica. So that's, for me, I'm, I'm not a geochemist, so I've done more physics. So I kind of think in very broad brush terms. Mm -hmm. um, so in Hawaii, you have very low silica and the the lava and, and the lava that comes out is very runny, and that's why you have these um, nice lava flows and fire fountains of of lava coming up and you know creating these fire fountains. So the kinds of behaviors that you see are controlled by the viscosity of the lava, which is controlled by the chemistry of the lava, as in it has not as much silica. So silica is um, kind of Polymer, kind of a polymerizing agent, so it tends to kind of bind things up. And in in the Caribbean, where you have the subduction zone volcanism, that produces a much higher silica um, concentration in the lava. So it's very sticky when it comes out. So you do not have generally lava flows. This stuff comes out, and you have this dome building dome forming eruptions and you don't get lava flows, you don't get fire fountains, you get volcanian explosions uh, where, where you know, the thing just explodes and creates pumice mm -hmm. and comes down, you get uh, pyroclastic flows where the, the dome, well, there's two different ways of getting pyroclastic flows, classic ways, the, the dome builds up Mm -hmm. And then a piece of it breaks off and creates an avalanche of um, rock and ash at 600 degrees that kind of then races down, down the sides of the volcano. But you can also get a paraclastic flow when you have an explosion that produces a big eruption column that goes up. And then what can happen sometimes, it doesn't become buoyant it just collapses back down again. And then you get a column collapse pyroclastic flow. So this thing goes up and then drops back down and you get pyroclastic flow of pumice and hot ash that then goes off, races off in you know, all different directions. And so I'm saying all that to say that, you know, different kinds of volcanoes have different um, hazards associated with them and different um, different modes of expression. So you can, if you study what's happening at Montserrat and look at the pyroclastic flows, that'll tell you about what's gonna happen with pyroclastic flows in another, on another similar volcano. 
mm-hmm. but you're not going to see pyroclastic flows and uh, these kinds of explosions in Hawaii because it's sure. a different kind of system. So there's still there's still there's still lessons to be learned, but mm-hmm. different. And, and so so yes, there there are similar things about volcanoes in the region and in other um, similar um, settings around the world, so other subduction zone um, volcanic arcs in different parts of the world. And so we can learn things from them. And so regionally, the Seismic Research Centre studies all of the volcanoes in the region. Mm-hmm. So we kind of coordinate our kind of research around you know, looking at all these volcanoes and seeing what, what lessons we can, we can learn and what kind of broad trends we can see. Um, and then as a, there are lots of people doing research around the world and what, you know, they might be interested in one specific island. So we can try and collate all of that information and kind of um, build build a, a, a broader picture of what's happening from you know, lots of different strands of research that are coming in from, from different places. So, well, anyway, if you have more questions, you can ask. <laughs> no, 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 I appreciate it. I, I, apologize, yeah. I, I apologize asking for the, the lecture, but it, it's, very, it's very interesting and, you know, bringing us to speed. Uh, I, I, I appreciate that, um, that you spent time on that. Um, uh, future uh, visions. Um, obviously, you know, you're, you're in, in a, a range of fascinating research. You like the research side of things. Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the geothermal energy production. Um, other interesting uh, things looking out the next five, ten years, whether it's for mm. uh, how, how new technologies are capturing energy or uh, uh, chemical products from volcanoes any interesting i know you're not you don't say on the commercial side much but any any anything coming down the pike that's like wow that's uh that'd be pretty cool yeah. if you could harness this or that so that's it and it's, it's more i guess in terms of i guess what the big questions are um whether uh, i'm not sure yeah if the answers are there yet but in terms of a geothermal um energy though the big and the big problem you have is permeability okay which is how how well fluid flows through a kind of region and so for to successfully exploit a geothermal system you need high temperatures you need to have fluid you need to have good permeability so you drill a well into this region and the fluid flows into it and up the well and you can exploit the energy from from this high temperature fluid and so one of, one of the big um, problems with geothermal development is is the high risk involved in drilling a well because it's a very expensive um, several you know several million dollars for each well okay. and and the returns for geothermal are not as high as in in uh, the fossil fuel industry. So you know, so so the the risk to benefit ratio kind of makes it you know uh, 
more difficult for people to, to kind of financially justify. Okay, well, well, we'll just drill 10 wells and we'll see what we get. Because mm. that's, you know, maybe $60 million. Okay. And you're not sure what you're going to have. So one of the areas of research that I'm interested in is, is how do we find these high permeability regions in the subsurface? And so that we can target the wells to these high, high permeability regions. And so that's kind of the part of a long kind of research um, program that we're working on. Uh, so, so it's things like looking at, looking at multiple data sets together to, to, to kind of refine the subsurface interpretation. Um, looking at the temperature distribution, subsurface temperature dis distribution, and then using that to constrain like how, how, how must the fl fluid be flowing in the subsurface? Right. Okay, what were we talking about? <laughs> yeah. we were just, you, were, you were just telling us about the future. Oh yeah, so subsurface. Yeah, so if you look at the subsurface temperature, then you can infer how must the fluid be flowing in the subsurface to give you that temperature distribution. And if you know where the fluid is flowing, then fluid is going to flow where you have high permeability because the fluid is going to tend, it's going to want to want to go where it can go, and so by using these different methodologies, you can hopefully build up a subsurface permeability structure that you can then use to have higher confidence when you drill a well that it's gonna be productive. And so that would be um, quite useful in terms of managing the financial risk and make it more um, kind of financially viable. So, you know, so like a normal well maybe has like a, 25% probability of, of being productive. So if you can get that to 50% or 75%, then that'll encourage uh, more take up of, uh, of this um, energy source, which in, in, the, in the region here, we have really high energy costs because we generally use fossil fuels. And so, we have some some of the highest energy costs um, globally. It's only you know much higher than the U.S. and so on. So that that kind of is a, puts a, a break on kind of how how much development you can have if, you, if your energy is very costly. Sure. So, but as you pointed out, there's lots of volcanoes in the region. There's lots of um, geothermal resource, and so if we can utilize that, that that can be. Um, really beneficial. So that's kind of what I've been looking at there. In terms of volcanoes, um, volcanology is a really, kind of in many ways, a very young science. Um, I'm not great on my history of science, but um, my interpretation is really kind of like in the 70s and 80s when volcanology started to become more of a quantitative rather than purely descriptive kind of science. I think it's um, Professor George Walker um, in the 70s, he, he kind of started to 
use more quantitative methods and kind of bringing in more physics, mm -hmm. mathematics to describe processes and kind of pin things down a bit more. And so, so it's really quite, quite young. And we have a lot of understanding about the general processes, but a lot of the very important questions as to, you know, is this volcano going to erupt? How big is this volcanic eruption going to be? How long is it going to go on for? Even like a seemingly trivial question, like, is, is this volcanic eruption over? <laughs> These are all questions that don't have really solid, solid, solid answers to them. So th those are the kind of questions that we're um, looking at. So for example, is this eruption over? Um, so I said, this is an epic here in Monster, it's an episodic eruption. Mm -hmm. It started in 95 and had five phases of activity. Now the last phase of activity was in 2010. That was phase, phase five, essentially. And it's 2020 now. Mm. So the obvious question is, is this eruption finished? <laughs> Did it finish 10 years ago? And at the moment, we don't, we don't think it is. Um, but pinning down exactly, unequivocally, the answer to that question is, is, is actually a difficult question. So we have three main kind of monitoring techniques and we have a, a standard, standard model that we use in Montserrat, kind of how we interpret that monitoring data. Mm -hmm. And that's ground deformation, okay. the sulfur dioxide gas flux, and seismic activity. We talk much about seismic activity, but actually that's the most important thing. It's because I guess it's because I'm not a seismologist that I didn't talk about it that much. But it's probably like one of the best tools for volcano monitoring is um, seismometers. So, so we, as I said earlier, during a pause, the, what we've seen is that the volcano, I'm not sure, I've actually got a picture of it here. High tech, I can't, let's see what's going on there, okay. It's got a lot so of nice that, colors on it. <laughs> yeah. So this is what we call our mega plot. Okay. Um, which shows the main monitoring data. But we're just going to focus on that, on those lines. Okay. It starts off in red and yep. turns blue at the end there. Yep. And so what you see is during the pause, it's going up. During, during activity, it goes down. And at the moment, it's still going up. That blue line is still increasing. Mm -hmm. And so our, our standard model says that that means that magma is still coming into the magma chamber. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what's causing this thing to keep, keep swelling up. So mm -hmm. that, if that's the case, then it means that the magmatic system is still active. 
Got it. And we, you know, we still have a, a decent probability of having more activity in the future. And this is just a very long pause. Got it. Similarly, with the gas flux, like none, none of the other islands produce significant quantities of sulfur dioxide. And they all, I mean, they all have volcanic systems, whereas mm -hmm. we are uh, producing about two to 300 tons per day at the moment of sulfur dioxide, which is a very, it's a big excess of, of sulfur dioxide. Sure. And so, so in our standard model, we think that the magma that's coming from very deep, it's got lots of sulfur in it. And when it comes into the shallow magma chamber, it gives off its sulfur dioxide. And that's why we see this excess sulfur dioxide. So again, that means oh, we still got stuff coming in. It can go off again in the future. Mm. And then we have seismicity, um, different kinds of earthquakes that we look at. Um, let's quick run, run now. So volcanotectonic, which is just similar to, to the kinds of earthquakes that you know, people know about, but just on a very small scale and produced by the volcanic system. And we have long period earthquakes, which are these low, low frequency earthquakes, which tend to be associated with fluid flow and gas flow in the conduit and hybrid earthquakes, which are a mix. If you look at them, they look partly like volcanotectonic earthquakes and partly like long period earthquakes. So they start off looking quite like a VT or volcanotectonic earthquake and then they end looking like a long period earthquake. Mm. And we tend to see those when things are really, you know, the magma is really moving in the conduit and uh, it's causing kind of little ruptures in the conduit wall and gas flowing through those ruptures. So um, so we look at these kinds of earthquakes. And at the moment, we have very low. Are you still there, Ira? Okay. I'm here. I'm here. Can you, you're frozen. Yeah, oh, you're, okay. your video is frozen just now. Um, so we're seeing very low levels of seismicity at the moment, but we're still seeing these volcanotectonic earthquakes. And occasionally, we get what we call in house, we call them volcanotectonic strings. Mm -hmm. or VT strings, which are small swarms of earthquakes. So you'll see, you know, maybe a few dozen earthquakes happening over a couple of hours. Mm. Um, and those, you know, happen periodically. So we're seeing, still seeing some seismicity, we're seeing this deformation, we're seeing this gas. So we're like, okay, we think it's not over but it's been 10 years and nothing has happened. And so at the moment, we're looking at different, different explanations. You know, are there any alternative ways of looking at this? So one idea that's being kind of hotly debated at the moment and is still in its very early stages is uh, the idea that the rheology of the crust might be such that you see a delayed response. So it's mm. called viscoelasticity. Okay. Um, so um, 
mean, if you played with oobleck, <laughs> cornstarch stuff. Sure. That's a kind of viscoelastic kind mm -hmm. of material. So on short time scales, it behaves elastically. And then on long term time scales, it behaves in a kind of viscous fashion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that you can introduce a pressure source in the subsurface and you know, the ground kind of responds to it. And then over a long period of time, it just kind of creeps out, creeps out, even though the pressure hasn't changed, it keeps creeping. And that could be an explanation for what you see. Um, but I said, there is, it's very early days for that um, interpretation still we need to better understand, you know, what is the rheology of the crust? It's very, also very dependent on what the thermal structure is in the crust. You need to have relatively high temperatures, kind of unusually high temperatures to see that. And it would have to be across the whole island. Mm. And the, the different kinds of rheological models, um, it's, you know, it gets into lots of subtleties as to whether this is a, a viable explanation or not. So those are the kinds of things that we're kind of looking at to kind of better understand, you know, these extremely simple, naive questions of like, you know, simple as, you know, is this eruption over? Yeah. So there is a lot, a lot of work to be done on those. And I think there's not, there's no real silver bullet on the horizon. I mean, at the moment, so we have um, the main tool that we use okay. for like, looking at these big questions um, is something called expert elicitation. Okay. Which, uh, you know, we have every, every year we will have um, some of the top scientists from around the world come and like, kind of all look at the data together and then people will say, I, you know, what's the probability that this eruption is going to start again in 12 months? And people say, oh, everybody would have their own different percentages mm -hmm. and range of confidence. And all of that goes into a pot and <laughs> the answer comes out that way. So it's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nothing is it's kind of strange so we can we can be very you know we can do lots of very sophisticated science in certain areas sure but then in, in other areas you, you don't the, the tools to to get those answers are just not developed enough and we have to kind of use use these other kinds of tools which you know rely on people's experience and intuition and things right. like that <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> so it's kind of bizarre <laughs> I just uh, you, you you stimulated a thought for a second there, and actually this I I, I still know when they watch uh, the show I I um I usually give the bio of of my guests to my children and uh, mm. see if they come up with uh, anything interesting. Um, first of all, when I told them I was talking to you, they went you know, they lost their mind. They thought it was the coolest thing in the world. But um, obviously, um, my. Uh, they watch documentaries and so forth uh, mm -hmm. nowadays. And, you know, the topic came up about the, these super volcanoes. Um, 
when you get your uh, thought leader group together uh, or, or whether, whenever you're sitting around just thinking about other stuff, um, does, the, does the topic of super volcano and sort of the, obviously this question, hey, are we over? Or are we do something yet? Mm-hmm. Have, any, have any concern to the vol- volcanology community <laughs> in any way mm-hmm. that any of us normal people should be <laughs> concerned? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we, I mean, like I said, we, we generally, it's a very focused meeting and we're like all, you know, very focused on what we're, we're doing. So we don't sure. generally talk about super volcanoes, but, you know, it's just one of those things that's out there, yeah. which can take us all out. <laughs> and probably answer, you know prob- <laughs> probably will happen at some point in time um but uh like the probability that's going to happen in the next you know 100 years is you know is kind of manageably small enough that i can get to sleep at night okay. so I'll, I'll, I'll let them down <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know it's one of those things that's that's out there you know, like being hit by an asteroid, uh, something that you have minimal control over, but the probabilities is small enough that you're not kind of, you know, existentially kind of petrified. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. I, 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 will, I will assuage their concerns. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> um, Dr. Wright, coming, coming back to you, we typically uh, ask a wrap-up question uh, about um, – the important mentors and influencers that you've had throughout your career. You've mentioned a couple uh, as you've been um, uh, discussing what you've been up to. Uh, at this point, um, any other individuals, whether they be professors or, or colleagues, um, family members that um, you might want to shout out to now mention that have mm-hmm. been really instrumental uh, as you've made this amazing journey from Montserrat around the world and back, um, yeah. you're doing. Oh dear. Well, yeah, I'll probably forget a whole bunch of people. But yeah, I mean, I said like my family has always been great. They've never kind of really put any pressure on me to, you know, do certain things. I've just been kind of always just felt free to just follow whatever I found interesting. And luckily that's kind of worked out for me so far. And so I think that's, you know, that's been really, really beneficial um, in terms of other mentors. Um, so I said when, when I was at secondary school and we had this um, subject called electricity and electronics and it turned out to be <laughs> kind of a very formative experience because I mean, I don't think you'd get away with these methods now. It was pretty kind of a bit brutal sometimes. <laughs> it was because a teacher called Mr. Jarvis, but he kind of really compared to the other subjects, which I kind of found, you know, reasonably easy and not so much of a challenge. You kind of really kind of got a really big push and we kind of, you know, learned stuff that, you know, as I was like, 14, 15 at the time, and I didn't kind of see that stuff again until university. So it kind of really, it kind of really pushed us 
and you know kind of, which kind of built our confidence and our ability to solve problems and to kind of work hard and kind of get get through things and so some of his methods were a bit questionable but um, it, it, it was a quite a formative experience um, and say when I did my PhD um, I kind of turned into a bit of an academic orphan because my um, supervisor left just as I was actually before I turned up so I kind of got accepted to do the PhD and then my supervisor left mm. and then I kind of turned up so I was kind of adrift a bit and then I got a, um, had actually ended up with three super three main supervisors Jenny Gilbert Harry Pinkerton and Steve Lane and Steve did really the bulk of the hands-on um, supervising and, and and you know really helped me a lot kind of building the building the experimental equipment and talking through the results and, and, and that sort of stuff so that was really great but um, we also had in my group we had a another PhD student, Mike James, and he was like a couple of years ahead of me. And uh, he really kind of helped me a lot. Um, it was really kind of modeled for me, you know, what, you know, what being a good scientist was about. And he gave me lots of practical help, you know, even though I was kind of, you know, a bit kind of naive at the time. And he kind of really, really, gave me you know tons tons of help and like help kind of building equipment and all sorts of stuff like that so that was that was great I mentioned Jill who Jill Jolly who was the director of the MVO when I first started and she she um, kind of offered me my first position here mm -hmm. so and she you know, she was really you know good good leader and uh, kind of kind of showed kind of what what it was to be you know a, a good leader but you know kind of keeping keeping calm under pressure and that sort of stuff that was great um, so I mentioned Peter Mallon and again that was really a really great opportunity that he afforded me um, and he's, he's kind of one of those people who kind of he said oh you know you're smart you can figure it out so a lot <laughs> of stuff you know you're just getting completely thrown into the deep end so it's like here's here's the empty equipment you go to Montserrat figure it out <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah and so that was, you know, you, you kind of develop a lot as a person in, in, in those kinds of circumstances and that having that, you know, here's that kind of level of trust in your abilities. Whereas, you know, you know so we'd often so we'd kind of feel a bit like kind of geophysical special forces. So, so we do these projects in different places and, you know, be like one or two of us would go and you know we'd be gone for like a month two months three months and you have you know minimal contact you just have you know a certain amount of money the equipment and you just 
figure it out <laughs> <laughs> and and you know kind of make make the project work and the things you know things go wrong all the time and you just okay how do i solve this problem you know what what do i need to do here and so that that kind of sort of quite quite uh, a kind of formative experience at time based in new zealand but so we would do you know go to chile and we would have to have people to help actually do the physical work because we'd be digging a lot of holes to put equipment so you have you know we'd have a team of chileans who are helping that so you kind of you know having to try and learn enough spanish to kind of make it make communication possible and mm-hmm. kind of navigating all of that so it was, it was yeah, it was a it was a good experience. A lot of stressful times, but you know, it was it was good. And we did a lot of interesting, interesting, interesting work. And so it's like when I came back to Trinidad, um, the director at the time was um, Dr. Richie Robertson, and again, he was another. Um, you know, really good leader who kind of modeled, you know, good leadership. And you always felt that, you know, you kind of supported to kind of develop and develop your interests and, and do um, do interesting things and, and kind of do, do as much as you do as much as you can. And, and also kind of, you know, trying to build like a good team spirit and mm-hmm. kind of build, build that kind of, uh, so, so that's really good. So I mean, when I floated the idea of, you know, applying for the directorship, you know, he was really supportive. You know, I was mm-hmm. like, I mean, I was very kind of tentative. I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm kind of up to this, but uh, yeah, he was kind of, he was very supportive. So yeah, I had a lot of, yeah, I've worked with, you know, a lot of great people, you know, I've worked in different places and different times and, you know, I've always had, the luck to work with, you know, lots of really, really great people and, and, and kind of to work in areas where, you know, everybody believes in what they're doing. I think it's something useful and important and, you, and, and that really helps a lot, you know, that you kind of you have that and everybody has that kind of belief that what they're doing is, is useful. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that's... Me. Great message. Great message. And I appreciate that. Um, one final question, going back to the mm-hmm. very beginning uh, of, of the episode when um, first uh, we first introduced you uh, and you put up the professor on Gilligan's Island. I just have to ask your top line thought, why the hell couldn't he fix the boat? <laughs> <He's that smart. laughs> yeah, well, he knew that yeah, he wouldn't series would be over and you wouldn't get all those residuals <laughs> exactly well uh dr Ryan, it's it's been a real pleasure having you uh listening to your journey and, and sort of uh, everything you're going to be doing moving forward in this uh evolving field uh, evolving specialty um for everybody that's going to be watching this episode or listening on the podcast uh you've been listening to dr graham ryan director of the montserrat volcano observatory on the Island of Montserrat in the West Indies. Uh, Dr. Ryan, thank you for taking so much time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us and educate us on this topic. Uh, and thank you for everything you do and, uh, and 
in, in generating knowledge and protecting the future uh, and what's potentially is coming. Um, <laughs> so th thank you for, it was, it was a really great discussion. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was an interesting conversation. Thanks.